And the rest of you can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 7 to 12 this morning. Farming, or the farming industry, is advancing quickly in technology. This little robot here is called Terra Sentia, which means Earth Sense. This robot drives through crops and collects data, such as the size and health of each plant. And these aren't just broad measurements like how tall the plant is, but it goes so far as to measure the leaf size and the stem diameter. And it's not just broad health measurements either, but it can get as specific as the quality of each ear of corn on each plant. That is all that this, me- this robot collects and measures. And this data is valuable to farmers who are constantly looking for ways to improve the quality of their production. Now, traditionally, farmers had to measure these things by hand, walking through their crops. But as you can imagine, with miles and miles and miles of crops, they could only take the data from a a select group, a, a small portion of their crop. But this robot can cull through the entire field on its own providing mass samples for better diagnostics. Technology is amazing, isn't it? We've come into a day of the robot, the robot running a lot of the things that men and women used to do. But even with this great advancement, there are still some flaws. Occasionally, the robot gets stuck in mud. Occasionally, the robot trips over a branch or a a, a loose plant. In fact, the robot currently travels less than one mile per hour. That's pretty slow. And so, as you can imagine, it requires multiple charges throughout its process and a lot of time to collect all of the data. Now, farmers still dream of a technology that can analyze the health of their crops in an instant with perfect, not flawed results. In Matthew chapter 3, 7 to 12, John the Baptist tells us of a man who can do this perfectly. A man who knows the quality or the health of each plant in his crop. He knows and can swiftly distinguish between the healthy and the unhealthy plants. He can distinguish between the real believer and the fake believer. Not only can this man distinguish them, but he will also purge them. And make no mistake, unlike humans or robots, he makes no mistakes. This message from John the Baptist in Matthew 3, verses 7 to 12 is a warning. It's a severe, a stern warning to anyone who is faking Christianity or has embraced a fraudulent version of it. Anybody who is uh, living a do more or do better Christianity, a do more and get more Christianity, a, a do better and look better Christianity, any fraudulent version that is all about outer change and how you're perceived by others 
rather than interchange and how you are seen by the Lord. The fraudulent or the fake Christians are phonies. And they will be exposed by John the Baptist. And ultimately they will be purged by the one who comes after him. The one who will separate the unhealthy from the true and the healthy. So I ask you, where do you stand? This is a strong message, one that requires for us to do some self-evaluating. Are, are we faking it? Are we about the outer change that everybody sees? Or have we been truly changed from the heart? And are we bearing the fruit of that change in our lives? So we come to our text, Matthew 3, 7-12. Before we get there, I'd like to open us up in prayer. Heavenly Father, God, you see not as man sees. We look at the outer appearances, Lord, but you see the heart. God, I pray that we would see our hearts accurately today, that we would self-evaluate to know for sure, to have true assurance of our salvation. God, I, I pray for anybody in here who is faking it who is committed to a religiosity without true heart change, without true repentance, true faith. I pray that, Lord, you would expose to them who they really are and that they would repent truly and turn to you. Lord, help us to be watchful and vigilant. And in your Son's name, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So look down at the text with me, Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. Of course, we were introduced last week to the King's Herald, John the Baptist, this man who baptized and preached a gospel of repentance. Here is now his message, his strong warning in verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism... Let's, first in, let's start with the profile of the religious frauds. Who are these two groups, Pharisees and Sadducees? They're two distinct parties within the religious thought of Judaism. Both are represented in, in the uh, Jewish ruling council, which is the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees were the legalists. They adhered to strict practice, not only of the Mosaic Law, which is in the Scriptures, but they ascribed to the oral traditions that were passed down by their ancestors. They added law to law, placing heavy burdens on the shoulders of many. And not everybody was a fan of the Pharisees, even amidst the rabbis. Not all rabbis were Pharisees. In fact, one rabbi writes of the Pharisees this, it's a tradition among them to torment themselves in this world, and yet it will gain them nothing in the next. Another rabbi writes in jest, the Pharisees would subject the globe of the sun itself to their purifications. They were staunch legalists, arrogant separatists from other impure commoners outside of their association. Now, among those who would disagree with the overbearing approach of the Pharisees were the Sadducees. 
Now the Sadducees adhered to the Mosaic law, but they were not fans of how the Pharisees overinterpreted and applied it. They were more progressive in their theology and practice. They were a bit looser with the scriptures. What we need to know about the Sadducees is that they were the religious politicians. They had an interest in political matters. They played the middle ground between the Roman hierarchy and the tradition of Judaism. They were composed of the wealthy, the aristocrats, the upper class. They held the majority of the Sanhedrin and even the office of high priest. These two groups were divided over theology, divided over the way they lived out their theology. They were mostly at odds with each other, yet they were able to unite under one cause. And that is that they both hated Jesus Christ. They both opposed him. It was a kind of arrangement where the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's how much they hated Jesus. They were both threatened by his growing influence. They were both humiliated by his teaching. They were both frustrated by his indisputable works. And they would finish what Herod started, coordinating and collaborating to kill the Messiah. So these two religious parties, we're going to see them again. They're going to keep popping up throughout the gospel, trying to stump Jesus, directly opposing him, ultimately crucifying him. So they were united under one cause, and John the Baptist unites them under one curse. He says, you're both the same. And that is that you're both religious frauds. You're fakes, phonies. John sees right through the veneer of religiosity to their corrupt, self-glorifying motive. He exposes them. He exposes them in this text. And so continue to read in verse 7. The first point in your outline is exposure. Exposure. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You broad of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Brought of vipers is what John calls them. Jesus calls them the same thing. In the book of Matthew, later on, Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. Matthew chapter 23, verse 33. What does it mean? What does it mean? Well, you probably know what a viper is. It's a snake. They're a venomous snake. They were common in the wilderness of Judea. John was likely familiar with them. He grew up in the wilderness. And vipers are the kings of camouflage. They blend in. They're difficult to spot until it's too late. If you remember, the Apostle Paul was bitten by a viper. He was starting a fire on the island of Malta, and he he reached into some sticks, and he got bit by a viper. They're the kings of camouflage. He calls them a broad of vipers. What does broad mean? It means the descendants of, the children, the sons of vipers. So this is not only an indictment on them, but their whole school of religiosity. You're born into viperhood, essentially. It may even be an implication about their ultimate father, the original viper, which is who? Satan. Satan. So calling them vipers, John exposes them as sinister, 
deadly and masters of disguise. This is a good nickname for the religious hypocrite. They blend in with their religious good works, but they're full of bad intentions, poison. They bite and spread their religious poison to others. They're dangerous. Even now, they slither over to John's baptism. Their intentions are suspect, probably to confirm or conform with the, the convictions of the, the crowds, to go through the motions just like everybody else, to continue the maintenance on their religious veneer. But John exposes them for who they really are. You broad of vipers, sons of snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? It's kind of a funny question, isn't it? How do you get snakes out of the brush? Well, one way to do it is to light the brush on fire. If you light the brush on fire, you'll watch the snakes flee for their lives. John just takes the proverbial torch to the bush. He exposes them with a message of fire and brimstone, a message of judgment. This question is more of a statement about them than a question to them. It's kind of like, you know, who poked the bear? Oh, look who's crawled out of their den. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? John doesn't mince words or speak to them softly. He exposes them because they're dangerous. Snakes are dangerous, aren't they? Hypocrites are dangerous too. Hypocrites hide blend in, even in the church today, but they need to be exposed. They need to be shown for who they really are. Poisonous, deadly, and ultimately headed for a very unhappy ending unless they repent. Unless they truly repent from the inside out. Which leads us to the command. John gives them a clear command. This isn't just a command for the Sadducee and the Pharisee, but it's a command to all who came to his baptism. He says in verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Or, you translate it this way, produce fruit that's worthy of repentance. John gives us some amazing insight here. It's a simple command, a quick sentence, but it is so profound. First of all, you have to note that the sign of baptism does not save you. Water baptism, the sign of baptism, does not save you. These Pharisees and Sadducees were being warned as they came into the water for baptism. And John essentially says, hey, just because I baptize you doesn't assure you of your salvation. Your salvation is assured by the fruit it produces in a changed life. Life. Second, John is careful with his language to show that real repentance produces real fruit, not vice versa. In other words, by way of illustration, you don't pick up a plump, healthy, juicy apple from the grocery store, take it home, and glue it to the branch of a dead apple tree expecting that the healthy, plump apple will then make the tree healthy. That's ridiculous, isn't it? 
We know, everyone knows, that a healthy tree produces good fruit, not vice versa. Similarly, good works are the product of real repentance. Good works don't produce real repentance. John doesn't tell them, go back and do more good things, adhere more to the Mosaic law, and then maybe you'll actually repent. He says the change has to happen in here and produce the fruit of repentance in your life. In other words, heart change results in life change. This principle runs through Jesus' teaching in the book of Matthew. We are going to hit more than a handful, more passages as we go through this gospel that talks exactly about this. For example, Matthew 7.15 says this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by what? Their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the deceased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, neither can a deceased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You will recognize them by their fruits. Matthew 12, 35. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruits. And then he says, you brought of vipers. There it is again. Just to continue forward, Matthew 13, 23. What was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields. In one case, a hundredfold, in another, sixty, in another, thirty. Matthew twenty-one forty-three. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its what? Fruits. A changed heart produces a changed life. It does. The evidence of true repentance is the fruit, is seen in the words, the actions. You could put it this way. When the heart turns in repentance, the mouth, the eyes, the hands, and the feet follow. Follow. So let me ask you, have you truly repented? Have you truly turned, as we saw what repentance was last week, turned in your heart, transformed inwardly to produce the fruit of repentance in your life? Point number three, false security. False security, and this comes out of verse 9. There was a word written by the, the rabbis in their midrash. Their midrash was essentially their commentary on the Bible. This was the word that they wrote. If Abraham's children were morally dead, without blood vessels or bones, his merit would still avail for them. In other words, this is what they thought. A Jew can live as extravagant and immoral a life as they wanted to live, show up to heaven, and be covered by the merits of their father, Abraham. Essentially, they believed Jews had a free pass to heaven. Free pass of salvation. And John squashes that. That's, he says that's false security. 
That's false security. He says it in verse 9. Don't presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. He says, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. He speaks in hyperbole to emphasize a point. You have a false sense of security if you think your heritage covers your sin. It doesn't. Even the Jew, a physical descendant from Abraham, needs to repent, needs to turn. Paul says it in Romans 9, 6. He says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Paul goes on in that chapter to show that even within the people of Israel, there are those who receive the promise and those who don't. There are those chosen by God, And there are others who are vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. True children of Abraham are children by faith. Faith, which yields the fruit of repentance. Galatians 3.29 says, If you are Christ's by faith, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. There is a temptation today, even in the church, to put your trust in your heritage. You say, oh, well, my parents are Christian. So that then makes me a Christian. Or I grew up in the church. Therefore, I'm a Christian. Listen, heritage is false security. It's a blessing. It's a privilege to grow up in a home that preaches Christ. It's a blessing to grow up in the church and to be taught the gospel. But until you receive Christ believe in Him by faith, and turn from your sins, you don't have Him. So to just say, because of your heritage, you're saved, that's false security. False security. And John exposes them and exposes their argument, their line of thinking, that because Abraham's their father, they're secure. They're not. And so here comes Point number four, the purge warning. The purge warning. Look at verses 10 to 12. I'll read through them again. It says, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in His hand. He will clear His threshing floor and gather His wheat into the barn, but the chaff He will burn with unquenchable fire. My wife doesn't like to send me to the grocery store. There's two reasons. Maybe some of you men relate. Number one, I come back with more groceries than were on the list. It's hard to walk by the chip aisle and not grab some chips. So that's one reason. The second reason is I always come back with bad produce. Always. I mean, I will sit there, the pile of avocados in the produce section... And I'm lifting these things up. There's a hundred there. I'm trying to squish them a little bit to sense if, if they're good ripe or overripe and bad. Every time I get a handful of avocados, come home, cut them open, 
black spots. It's like these avocados were just, you know, in a boxing match. I always pick the wrong ones. I have a hard time distinguishing bad fruit from good fruit. John tells us about someone who doesn't have that problem. He is the perfect farmer. He's got a good eye. And he can perfectly distinguish between good fruit, the sign of health, and bad fruit, which is the sign of death. He can perfectly distinguish between his wheat, which is helpful and good, and hell's chaff, which is useless and only worthy to be burned. And not only can this one distinguish them, but he will purge them. So there's two purging illustrations here in this passage. Verses 10 and 12. In verse 10, John says, There is an axe laid to the root of the trees. And if the tree does not bear good fruit, it's a sign that it's dead, it's unhealthy, and it will be cut down. Because a tree that does not bear good fruit is good for nothing except what? Firewood. So the unhealthy trees will be purged from the grove and they will burn. The second illustration is another purge illustration related to farming. He says in verse 12, there's a winnowing fork in his hands. He will clear his threshing floor, gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn. Well, what's a winnowing fork? What does it mean that he's clearing the threshing floor? Here is a picture of a gentleman clearing the threshing floor. You see the winnowing fork in his hands. He's throwing the wheat into the air. And in this process, the chaff, which is the dead, very light part, is separated and and usually blows away from the grain, which is heavier, the good part, that falls on the ground. The useless chaff is purged from the pile, removed. So, two illustrations of purging, separating the bad from the good, the useful from the useless, the fraudulent hypocrites from the genuine believers. And the end for these frauds is not just separation, but the purge leads to fiery judgment. Fire is used in both. The tree doesn't bear good fruit. It's cut down and thrown into what? Fire. The chaff, what does he do with that? He will burn with unquenchable fire. This reference seems to take us beyond the illustration to a real and a horrific judgment. John, to put it bluntly, is talking about hell. Jesus says it even more bluntly to them in Matthew 23.33. He says, you serpents, you brought of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Very clear. Hell is a real place with unquenchable fire, unimaginable suffering, unending grief, and it is eternal. This is not an empty threat. This is a fact. This is the religious hypocrite's destiny. Fiery judgment in hell. Now who sends people to hell? We must ask, whose axe is laid at the root of the tree? Who 
is holding the winnowing fork. Who clears his threshing floor? Who will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire? John answers that question in the middle of these illustrations in verse 11. He says this, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Before we get to the he, who this he is, you see in this verse there are three baptisms. First, John's baptism, the baptism of water, which is a sign of repentance, an outward sign of an inward heart change. Then there's two, the baptism of the Holy Spirit that comes from He, and there's also the baptism of fire that comes from He. What are these baptisms? Well, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is talked about in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 10, Peter goes into Caesarea. He preaches the gospel to Cornelius, a a Roman centurion, and he preaches the gospel to a bunch of other Gentiles. And then in verse 44, it says this, while Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. The believers from among the circumcised, the Jews, who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues, extolling God. And Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And so he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. In this account, by the way, we see two baptisms. We see two baptisms. There is the Water baptism that Peter commands in verse uh, 48, but preceding that is an immersion by the Holy Spirit or under the Holy Spirit. That's interesting. And by the way, the water baptism follows the Spirit baptism. Two different baptisms. Now Peter provides commentary on these events. He recounts them before a Jerusalem council in chapter 11. He says this, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. It was the same. I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John, the Baptist, baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. What is Peter saying there? What just happened was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus... Who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, they fell silent. They glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted what? Repentance that leads to life. What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Simply put, it is the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit that comes into the heart of the Christian when they believe Jesus. It's the transformation that happens inside. The Holy Spirit makes them new. And He indwells every true believer. This is a mark of genuine faith that produces repentance, that leads to life and bears 
fruit. And this baptism is, is a baptism that John could not perform, but the one after him can. There's a second baptism that the mighty one gives. You see, it's the baptism of fire. Fire. The word fire in context is evidently talking about, and obviously talking about judgment, is it not? And so why are we to assume that this fire is any different? This is a baptism of judgment. Not only does he, the mighty one, grant a baptism that marks a genuine believer, he grants a baptism that marks the fake believer. It's an immersion in fire. Judgment. And it's at this point we can't go any further without identifying the one who comes after John. The one who is mightier than him. The one who holds the axe. The winnowing fork is in his hand. The one who clears his threshing floor. The one who burns the chaff with unquenchable fire. The one who sends people to hell. Who is he? It's the king. This is the king's warning. This is the king's purge. It's Jesus the Christ, the one whom John was a herald for. The one who uh, comes after the herald. And it's the one who walks into the scene in the very next verse. Look at 13. After he gives this warning, then Jesus came from Galilee. Jesus purges. Jesus condemns. He will do it finally and ultimately at the great white throne judgment. And Jesus preached on that later in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 25, he describes his return in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king, the king will say to those on his right, the sheep, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Verse 41, then the king will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into what? The eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. You should know that if you're having trouble believing in hell as a real, literal, eternal place, you have trouble with the teachings of Jesus Christ. No one theologian, scriptural author talked more about hell than Jesus. And Jesus Himself says, Hell was a place of judgment, fire. Hell is eternal, just as eternal life is eternal. Hell is eternal 
punishment and it is an actual place that He will send those who He does not know. The hypocrites included. The fakes, the frauds, the chaff, the bad tree that bears bad fruit. This is a warning. Before Jesus even steps into the scene of what Jesus will ultimately do. He will purge the frauds. He's going to continue to expose the religious hypocrites in his ministry. He, he continually exposes them. He calls them again, you brought of vipers, you brought of vipers. Putting burdens on people's backs. But in his second coming, in his return, he will throw them into unquenchable fire. And this king, he's not fooled. He does not make mistakes. The Pharisees and the Sadducees couldn't fool him even with all their legalistic rules, their outward appearances, this veneer. He saw right through it. And the reality is, is that there's so many frauds and fakes even in the church today. There are people who show up putting on this religious veneer, acting like life is all together. They got everything together on the outside, but inwardly they're enslaved to sin. They're enslaved to selfish motives. They're enslaved to the same self-glorification that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were enslaved to. And they need to be exposed. Because ultimately, for their own sake, ultimately they will be purged and judged if they do not repent. And so while this is a warning, this is also a call to anyone in the church who's playing the game to truly repent. To turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. To place your faith in the King. Don't continue to oppose Him like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Don't hold on to your religiosity. Surrender to the King. The King who loves you. The King who loves you enough to come to this earth and die as the perfect sacrifice in your place. Trust in Him. Give your heart wholeheartedly to Him. And watch the Holy Spirit transform your life. And if you truly surrender to the King, you will bear that good fruit and keep with repentance. Just another word. You, you know, you may be able to fool your brothers and sisters in the church. You, you may be able to fool your spouse. You may even be able to fool your pastor, but you can't fool the king. And I'm not the one who bears the axe. I don't hold the winnowing fork. He does. The winnowing fork is in his hands, verse 12. He will clear his threshing floor, gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So, Christian, continue to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Continue to follow Christ. Continue to turn from sin, from the heart. Follow Jesus. If you are not a Christian, you don't know the King, surrender to Him today. And experience His grace, His mercy, His love, His welcome, His embrace, rather than His purge. Let me close in prayer.
Father, this is a strong warning from your word, strong warning from John the Baptist that we read today. And Lord, I, I pray that you would use it to warn us. I, I pray that all of us would self-evaluate, making sure that we truly know you, that we're truly repentant from the heart, turning from our sin, turning from idols, secret sins, hidden sins, that we would turn from all of that and trust ourselves to you. I pray for any person here who has not done that, who are the persons who are harboring secret sins, the persons that are hiding in their sin, I pray that they would truly repent and bow their knee to the King, surrender to Him, and bear the fruit of repentance in their life, Lord. I pray that you would cause that to happen even today, even in this service or through hearing this stream, that people would do that. Lord, I pray for us as believers God, that you'd help us to continue. Uh, the Christian life is not a one-and-done repentance, but we continue to repent, turning from sin and entrust ourselves to you. Help us to continue to bear fruit, to be effective lights and ministers of the gospel that shine brightly for you, truly transformed from the inside out. We love you, Lord, and we want to do good things, not because we have to, but out of a love and appreciation for you, Lord, for what you've done in us. Help us now. In Jesus' name, amen.